Jerry Harvey is a successful Australian businessman. But some years ago, when his personal wealth was estimated at around about one and a half billion, give or take a hundred million or so, he was quoted as saying, I still have a fear about going broke. I always think about it. Now, to me, that's a pretty amazing statement. It stood out for me when I read it in the paper. And it's quite difficult for us to understand, I, I think, for most of us. Well, perhaps the concept of the hedonic treadmill goes some way to explaining it. Back in the 1970s, psychologists came up with this concept. Like the word hedonism, hedonic comes from the Greek word for pleasure or happiness. So, the idea is that as we chase after and as we gain whatever we think is going to make us happy, we end up being no happier than we were before we started. And in many cases, like Jerry Harvey, our underlying anxieties or fears remain all the same. Now, of course, there's usually a jolt of pleasure when we get whatever we're after, whether it be more money, that new job, better house and garden. That's what keeps us on the treadmill. But it's short-lived, and so we keep running endlessly, endlessly after more. And just like on a treadmill in a gym, we run and we run, but we don't get any further forward. It's really quite depressing, isn't it? But it gets worse. Um, we, we can take ourselves off one treadmill, say the treadmill of chasing after material things, and straight away put ourselves on another one, say the treadmill of chasing after more life experiences, or the treadmill of chasing success at school or at work. So that, that's the hedonic treadmill, and I wonder if it sounds at all familiar to you. Well, in today's passage, Jesus cuts through all of that. He provides the ultimate and the only solution to satisfy our heart's many and varied desires. But before we dive into our text, and I'll, we will, as usual, go through uh, the verses but before we dive in, there are two important things that we need to be aware of. First is the particular occasion where this passage enters. Back in those days, the Jewish people would travel to Jerusalem three times each year for major festivals. And these weren't minor things, these were full-on pilgrimages with people coming from their homes all over Palestine to gather in at Jerusalem. Now, passage today describes event, events at the Festival of Tents or Booths, the Festival of Tabernacles, which was held every year at the end of the harvest period. Now, the festival included a number of ceremonies to thank God for all the crops that had been harvested in the season ahead, before. And importantly for us, as we look at today's passage, on the final day of the festival, there was a grand water ceremony. And this water ceremony was designed specifically for the people to express their dependence on God for rain to water their crops in the season ahead. So that's the first thing, that particular occasion. 
The second important thing to know is that Jesus has come down to Jerusalem for the festival and has been teaching in the temple courts. And he's begun to cause quite a stir among the people. Many of the Jews have come to believe that he's the Messiah promised in Scripture. Regardless of whether people believe in Jesus, he's getting a great deal of attention and the Jewish leaders are seriously rattled uh, by this. Because Jesus is distracting the people from their teaching and from their traditions and he's undermining their authority. So that's, that's the setting as we enter today's reading. And so we come to the first of three scenes that we're going to, to look at. And the Jewish leaders have had just enough of Jesus, and so they put out a warrant for his arrest. Uh, arrest. So if you join me at verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. Well, Jesus explains to the crowd that he's not going to be with them for long. He has to go back to the one who sent him, and we know that that's God, his father. And then he goes on to say to his listeners that they won't be able to follow him there. But the Jews misunderstand him. It's the first of uh, several misunderstandings in the course of this passage today. They wonder if he means that he's going to go away to teach Jews who live beyond Palestine, or perhaps to teach other people, non-Jews. John refers to them as the Greeks. So, going from verse 33, Jesus said, I am with you for only a short time, and then I go to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? Will he go where our people live scattered among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What did he mean when he said, you will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? So we see straight away that the crowd is confused by Jesus' words, and then we come to the second of the three scenes. And now Jesus wants us to understand how very momentous this is. Here's the scene. It's the final day of the week. It's the climax of this great annual Jewish festival. And Jesus is standing front and centre. Everyone's aware that this is the day of the dramatic water ceremony, the day when all the people commit the year ahead to God, trusting in him to bring rain to water their crops. And although Jesus knows the Jewish leaders have him in their sights, he doesn't hide from them and he doesn't hide from their temple guards sent to arrest him. He just goes right on the front foot. And extraordinarily, Jesus steps forward and makes a bold proclamation. He declares to the people that he's the one in whom they must place their trust. He says, if you're thirsty, come to me and drink. And in these few words, Jesus brings clarity to the midst of the confusion. And he offers the three simple steps that any of his listeners can take to relieve their thirst once and for all. It's just in one verse, verse 37. On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood 
and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. So let's slow down for a moment to think about these three steps. Step one is that Jesus' listeners have to acknowledge their thirst. And by this, Jesus means that before anyone can come to him, they have to recognise their deepest need. But it's not a physical thirst for water. It's the same thirst that compels any of us to stay on the treadmill, striving after all the things we think will satisfy us. Now, for some of Jesus' listeners in Jerusalem, it's a longing for freedom from the Roman occupying forces. And for others, it's a clinging to the status and authority that come with their position as religious leaders. But Jesus wants them to understand that behind all their striving is a deep spiritual thirst. It's a thirst ordained by God himself. It's ordained by God because this is his longing and this is God's heart. In his great love, God wants all who hear Jesus' words to reach out to him and to have their thirst quenched. So that brings us to step two. Once they've recognised their thirst, Jesus wants them to come to him. Behind the people's cravings lies their sin, the sin that separates them from God. It's their desire to go on living their way. But it's Jesus who is the way, the only way back to God. Jesus is the one who's going to die in their place on the cross. He's going to give his life for theirs so that God can accept them as pure, untainted by their sin. So it's only as the people put their faith in Jesus that they'll find the path to release from all the longings that will not be satisfied by the things, by the experiences of this world. And so we can see linking back to verse 34, once Jesus has returned to be with the one who sent him, his father, this is the only way anyone's going to be able to follow him there, if they've come to him. Step three, having recognised their thirst, having come to Jesus, the people need to drink. The people have to take in Jesus' beauty, his magnificence, his love and his mercy. People need to treasure him, treasure Jesus above all else and enjoy him and follow him. So continuing on, Jesus declares that those who do put their trust in him will have streams of water flow from within them, streams of living water flow from within them. And John explains clearly that by this Jesus means that those who believe will receive the Holy Spirit, the very Spirit of God, to dwell inside them. But this is only going to happen after Jesus has been glorified, that is, after he's died and risen again. So we look at verse 38. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. 
Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. So you see, Jesus offers great comfort to those who put their trust in him. All those who believe in him will receive the very Spirit of God to dwell within them. And God's Spirit's going to keep on prompting them to remember Jesus, prompting them to turn to him, to rely on him when he's no longer with them in person, when he's no longer there physically. And this is how streams of living water will flow from within them. And this is just an amazing thing, an amazing gift that God will give his people. But now the focus turns to the response of Jesus' listeners. And they're still very much confused. But now they're confused over his identity. Some think he's the prophet, predicted by Moses back in Deuteronomy 18. Others think he's the Messiah, the Christ, come to rescue them from the Roman occupation. And then demonstrating a serious lack of knowledge of Scripture, they question whether the Messiah could come from Galilee. Well, Isaiah 9, which is quite a famous part of the Old Testament Scripture that the Jews had, indicates that the Messiah will hail, in fact, from Galilee. And then it seems that they're ignorant somehow of Jesus' birthplace, that he was born in Bethlehem. All in all, the pictures of a crowd utterly confused And no one dares to arrest Jesus. So look at verse 40. On hearing his words, some of the people said, surely this man is the prophet. Others said, he is the Christ. Still others asked, how can the Christ come from Galilee? Does not scripture say that the Christ will come from David's family and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Which brings us then to our third and final scene, and the culmination of the confusion in this whole episode. Here we see the Jewish leaders behaving like characters in one of those old slapstick comedies, those old black and white slapstick comedies. Uh, The temple guards trundle back to the chief priests and the Pharisees, and when asked why they failed to arrest Jesus, they tell the truth and say, no one ever spoke the way this man does. Then John lays the irony on thick as he describes the Pharisees' response. According to the Pharisees, Jesus, who we know is the source of all truth, somehow has managed to deceive the guards. The Jewish leaders go on to claim that their deep knowledge of the law protects them from being deceived like the rest of the crowd. They say that people don't understand the law because they don't understand the law, they're under a curse. But in fact, of course, the opposite is true. It's the leader's pride in their mastery of the law that prevents them from seeing the truth in Jesus. They're the ones who are cursed. They're the ones who are blind to the truth, even when Jesus, the very embodiment of truth, the truth incarnate, is standing right before them. So from verse 45, finally the temple guards went back to the chief priests and Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him in? No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards declared. You mean he's deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted? 
Has any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed in him? No, but this mob that knows nothing of the law, there is a curse on them. So lastly then, Nicodemus, one of the Pharisees himself, speaks up. And perhaps you remember him from chapter 3 of John's Gospel when he came to Jesus at night. Well, like any good lawyer, Nicodemus raises a question regarding the appropriate procedure for them to follow before reaching a judgment. Of course, this is an entirely reasonable question for him to ask his peers, but they won't give him a straight answer. Instead, they just mock him, asking him whether, like Jesus, he's from lowly Galilean stock. And then the Pharisees claim that no prophet has ever come from Galilee. From verse 50, Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, asked, does our law condemn anyone without first hearing him to find out what he is doing? And they replied, are you from Galilee too? Look into it and you'll find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. And this really is descending into a black, like a really dark form of comedy. Because it's dark because we know that the Pharisees are going to uh, see Jesus put to death. But it's one thing for the crowd to be confused about Scripture. But these guys are the self-proclaimed experts. And the Scriptures make clear that prophets like Jonah did come from Galilee, as mentioned before in Isaiah 9, that there would be one who would come from, from, from Galilee. So John's leaving us with a clear impression that the Pharisees are actually so desperate to hold on to their status and authority that they're driven too to an utter state of confusion, just like the rest of the people. In fact, this whole passage really is a whirlwind of chaos. The crowd's confused by Jesus' words. They can't agree on where he's from. They don't know where he's going. They can't agree on who he is. And in their prejudice against Jesus, the Jewish leaders appear to have abandoned reason thinking altogether. Only Jesus is ever calm and purposeful, standing strong and speaking clearly in the eye of this storm. Well, have you ever been in a situation where everything is a mess, where chaos reigns, and then someone says something that brings complete clarity to the situation? There's an urban legend of sorts, the names of the players get changed, but it's something along these lines. Henry Ford, the great American industrialist, had a problem with his car factory so that production had stopped altogether. Now, the downtime was costing Ford an exorbitant amount of money, essentially leading to a situation of chaos for his business. So Ford sends for his friend, Thomas Edison, the great American inventor. And you can see the two of them there actually on the occasion of Thomas Edison's 80th birthday. That's Thomas Edison on the left and Henry Ford on the right. So Edison arrives and Henry Ford asks him if he can identify the problem area in the factory. In little time, Edison walks up to a wall of boilerplate. He takes a piece of chalk from his pocket and marks a small X 
on one of the plates. Well, the problem's quickly solved and Ford asks Edison to send him an invoice. So Edison sends his invoice for $10,000. Now, understandably, Ford is surprised by the great cost of solving the problem and like any reasonable client, asks for a breakdown of the fees. So Edison responds with the following itemization. Marking the plate with an X, $1. Knowing where to put it, $9,999. Of course, the point is that when chaos reigns and no one knows how to respond, real insight is of enormous value. But what we see in today's passage from John's Gospel is a situation where chaos reigns supreme and into this situation, Jesus brings total clarity. But it's an insight of infinite, eternal value to his listeners. It's just as we read back in the prologue of John's Gospel, back in chapter 1, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. So let's just take a few minutes to think about how Jesus' words apply to us here today, 2,000 years on. And the first question has to be, do you feel thirsty? Have you reached a stage in your life where you've learned that no amount of material wealth is going to bring you lasting peace and joy? No promotion at work, no house, no idealised romantic relationship, no number of new guitars and amplifiers will bring the lasting rest that we crave. It's true. Writing at the end of the 4th century, the great theologian Augustine put it this way, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Friends, if God has granted you that insight into your spiritual thirst, then Jesus' invitation is for you. But the second question is, have you come to him? Have you listened to him and seen how he's shown his love for you? And have you responded? Have you put your trust in him and made up your mind to follow him. If not, can I just encourage you to find out as much as you possibly can about Jesus? And there are any number of people here at this church who will be delighted uh, to help you, like the Christianity Explored course that's being run. But then can I invite you to do a thought experiment? What would life be like for you if you really did put your trust in him. As David writes in the Psalms, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. You see, glorious hope, great joy and a lasting peace really are just a step away. But thirdly, once we've recognised our thirst and come to Jesus, we must drink. And for most of us here today, I think this really is the take-home point from today's passage. 
Christian friends, God has given us his spirit, streams of living water flowing from within us. But we still have to drink of his spirit. For those of us who have put our trust in Jesus, the question is, do we recognise our continuing need for him? Or are we still like the crowd and the Jewish leaders in today's passage, living in confusion, as though we didn't even know the truth? This really is the great tragedy of the Christian life, that we should remain thirsty practically indistinguishable from those around us who do not know Jesus. We have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, but do we experience the full blessing that comes from seeking our refuge in him? We have direct access to Jesus right here, right now, through his spirit. It's an extraordinary thing. But do we recognise our continuing need, our thirst? And do we come to him to drink every day, letting him speak into our lives through his word and turning to him in prayer? Or do we just go on from day to day worried and upset about many things, craving for more, running on the treadmill, for all the world as though there really were some other way for our hearts to find rest? Friends, here's the thing, it doesn't work to keep running on the treadmill and it won't work simply to get off. Back in the 1600s, Blaise Pascal, the great philosopher and mathematician, put it this way. What else does this craving and this helplessness proclaim? But there was once in man a true happiness of which all that now remains is the empty print and trace. This he tries in vain to fill with everything around him, seeking in in things that are not there the help he cannot find in those that are. Though none can help, since this infinite abyss can be filled only with an infinite and immutable object. In other words, by God himself. You see, without Jesus, each of us is the same. Our underlying state in this life is one of confusion and chaos and into this chaos Jesus brings complete clarity but unlike Thomas Edison in the story he doesn't bring insight by marking an x to define where we have to perform some additional work he himself is the whole solution and he doesn't send an invoice reflecting the great value of his work either Rather, he's paid the price in full on our behalf. And he gives us his spirit to live within us, pointing us back to him day after day. Brothers and sisters, our great and generous God has given us everything that we need. So how will we respond? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for giving us everything we need every spiritual blessing in Christ. And thank you for speaking so clearly into the confusion of our lives. Help us now to recognise our deep spiritual thirst, to place our trust in Jesus and to drink.
to treasure him above all else. Help us now by the power of your Holy Spirit to recommit ourselves to you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.